Hey everyone, Ian here. I wanted to get in before we started to tell you that we will be having another interview on Friday, May 12th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. We will be joined by Dr. Ali Matu, host of The Psych Show on YouTube, to discuss mental health as it pertains to TTRPGs. Dr. Matu is a specialist in anxiety and anxiety disorders, and we intend to talk about how to approach mental health issues within the narrative of games, as well as how to use games as a tool to help deal with anxiety. If you have any questions you would like to ask, there is a link to a Google form in our show notes. Feel free to fill that out, and depending on volume, we may ask your question on the air. You may also send your questions to us via email at undercommontaste at gmail.com. Now, let's get on to the episode. See you all on the 12th. Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Since there must be chimeras, why is perfection not the chimeras of all men? I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today, in case you couldn't tell, <laughs> we're talking about chimeras. A little bit of a spoiler in the beginning. Just, Just a little bit. Yeah. Well, well, you know, whatever. What's a spoiler amongst friends? That's right. So again, we've been kind of going on long doing a theme of cryptid slash mythological slash kind of what's the word i want here i think mythical is mythical is pretty close but somewhere between cryptid and mythological those kind of spoopy creatures that kind of kick around um not quite fully fey but the things that go bump in the night generally and so we are generally holding more to western europe though we are taking a fair jump east with this one largely and as we have mentioned we are going to move to north america and with this we start getting into these um Algum creatures, these mashups, these chimeras that aren't fully one creature. They're not two creatures. They're this hodgepodge of things, and they are completely malformed, hideous, and terrifying. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. <laughs> I mean, you find these all over Europe, especially yeah. during the Middle Ages. I mean, they love just slapping critters together and making new weird monsters out of them. Yeah, well, I mean, they take one scary thing from one thing, another scary thing from another thing, like, hey... Double scary. It's kind of like pineapple, pineapple pin. <laughs> That's going to be stuck in your head now. You're welcome. Again, while you do see these in Europe, these are largely going to be found more in your Mediterranean, Arabic, Middle East areas. And then, again, as the Renaissance kind of sprung up and books started coming back to the mainland of Europe through various routes of trade and, unfortunately, the Crusades, these do spring up more and more and they do become more pronounced. Yeah. But we do also run into a lot of these in Eastern culture as well. Yes. In Indian culture and in Chinese and Japanese culture, you do have these amalgam creatures as well. Yes. So it is not a uniquely European thing. No, absolutely not. And we do have a few examples in this episode where we're going to be talking about chimeras from other parts of the world. Right. And then, you know, we have the modern chimera, which, I mean, is also just as terrifying. And these are probably what we're going to find more in-game, is to where science just had a terrible idea, they ran with it, and they did the whole Jurassic Park thing where they didn't stop if they should, they just did it because they could, and now they've got this creature that just kind of like, oh, look at that. Before we get too, too far into the episode, if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas... Please send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I did notice that there has been another mass exodus from Twitter because of new yeah. user policies. 
And so we may or may not stay on Twitter right now. It's just one of those inertia things. You know, we still have a decent amount of traction over there. We don't, I don't really interact with a whole lot outside of the TTRPG community. And I just haven't gotten really into the community. Mastodon, I guess. I've heard a couple things. I've heard there's something called Substack and a couple other things. And apparently there's a Blue Sky, which was actually made by the original creators of Twitter that they're trying to get up off the ground. There are options out there, but I mean, Twitter's kind of a fading venue as nature takes it. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and Mastodon at Undercommon Taste. We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. We have an itch store, undercommontaste.itch.io. That's where you can find our Liminal Horror Adventure, Beneath the Lake, and my solo RPG, Forever Home. We are also on Discord. You can find a link to our Discord in the show notes, and we would love for you to come over and chat with us. You can find our other podcasts wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're kind of everywhere now, so just whatever podcatcher you use, go ahead and find our older episodes. As always, please like and subscribe. Give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility. And you can always reach out to us on any of these platforms we've mentioned. We will interact with our comments. We love talking to our uh, contributors and our guests and our listeners as well. Yeah. Sometimes we don't get the notifications, so it may be a little while. But I do try to interact with whoever comments on stuff. Yes. Finally, I recently submitted a prompt to the guys over at World Build with us. At the time of recording, episode one of the two-parter is already out. By the time this comes out, both parts will be out. Excellent. It was an interesting concept that I had, and I loved the direction they took it. Okay. Basically, the concept of a high fantasy world plunged into an apocalypse because magic just stops. I like it. That's actually a game I'm currently working on called The Last Spell. And it's that magic has gone too far. And so they are trying to create the last spell to sever the world from magic. So I could actually see this leading into your world, which would be kind of fun. So I'm going to put a link to that in our show notes. And I encourage you to go and check out World Build with us. They're great friends of the show. Rob's a great guy. A bit of a curmudgeon, just like me. We get along great. (laughs) Okay. So. Now to the spoopy bits. Now for the spoopy bits. So I think if we're going to talk chimeras, we really have to start with the chimera. Absolutely. And this is one of those things very much like Pegasus. The chimera is actually a singular creature. It is a specific creature. Not all chimeras are the chimera, just like not all winged stallions are Pegasus. Pegasus was the name of a particular winged stallion. Chimera is, she is a one of a kind, very much a she, but Again, through Greek mythology, had the body in front of a lion. In the middle of her back was a fire-breathing goat, because why shouldn't goats breathe fire? Because, of course. And then her tail ended in the head of a snake. So she has lion face, goat head that breathes fire, and a poisonous snake on the back. And she very much would wreck your day. Going through the chimera again, because she was a she, she was the embodiment of feminine evil. Which is kind of a weird twist on this one. I don't know. It's kind of a thing. But yeah, so when Witch Trials came up, oh, obviously she had the spirit of a chimera or something along these lines, which is eh, probably wouldn't fly in today's culture. But again, something that carried back then. Also, the chimera was a harbinger of disaster, particularly of volcanic issues. And again, if you're looking at Greece, Turkey, Syria where you have a lot more geologic activity, even if you go further east into Byzantine, where you have near the oil fields, where you had the tar oil bubbling up, these things could catch fire. So this point of noxious gas and fire, this chimera was supposed to be a harbinger of this kind of disaster. 
Harbinger. Harbinger, yes. <laughs> Again, words you read that you never actually hear pronounced anymore. <laughs> I use Harbinger all the time. I don't know about you. Me, 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 me. <laughs> but yeah, so this Chimera was this Harbinger. Harbinger, haha. This Harbinger of Destruction. And again, it was very vicious because it had the speed and strength of a lion. It had the constitution and the tenacity of a goat. Plus it breathed fire. I have no idea where the fire breathing and goats got mixed together, but it did. It also had this poisonous, noxious tail that could poison you much like a lot of these methane gases would. And so this is, again, the one. In mythology, the chimera could only be killed by pouring molten lead down its throat, which was one of these things I read when I was like, I was in third or fourth grade. That made me fascinated with mythological creatures to start with. It was killed in the Iliad, and that was how, I forget the Greek hero's name, but he literally attached a piece of lead to his spear. And as the goat had breathed fire upon him and the spear, it melted the lead, and he shoved the molten point of the spear down the lion's throat, apparently either burning out its throat or filling its belly with lead. That would have been a big old honking spearhead. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it, it, they're Greek, you know? I mean, it's like the spear of Hector uh, was kind yeah, of Yeah, they, they are demigods. They, uh, so. Well, I mean, with this, he actually was, he was very much a mortal. But again, very much like you see in anime, I'm looking at you, uh, Final Fantasy and Cloud, you know, maybe the weapon was compensating a little bit for something. Just the oversized buster sword or things like that. Greeks loved their giant spears. I'm not saying it looked phallic. I'm just saying they loved their giant spears. <laughs> And so this is the primary chimera. As we look at others, again, we have things like the hippogriff, which kind of comes along the same lines where you have this avian head attached to a horse's body. This creature had both the majesty of land and sky. And as you start creating your chimeras, if you're wanting to homebrew a chimera, that's what you're wanting to do. Is you're wanting to take the best aspects of any creature and kind of mesh them together. Another great one that we all know of is the Sphinx. Again, another flying creature. It has the head of a lion, the wings of an eagle. So again, you have the majesty of the, you know, the king of the jungle and this great creature on land, as well as the majesty of this large flying soaring creature. The Sphinx, again, as we well known, was very much known for magical abilities, would like to tell riddles, was the guardian of the labyrinth, you know. So, I mean, the, the Sphinx was always great, great fun. And then you had the more bestial variation on that with the lion-eagle mashup in the griffin. Right. So, you know, the body of a lion, the head and wings of an eagle. Sometimes they had eagle talons for the front legs. There was a very popular motif in, especially in medieval Europe, because it combined the lion, which was the king of the land, with the eagle, who was the king of the sky. Yes. And so the griffin was considered a very magical, very powerful creature. In some of the early lore, Pliny the Elder wrote that they would dig burrows to lay their eggs and that you could find gold nuggets within the nests because they were tied with locations of vast wealth. If you could find a griffin, you could find gold because they dwelled in the same sort of areas. Right. Almost draconic than that, except dragons were more likely to steal and plunder or otherwise abscond their wealth. The griffins themselves just kind of were natural prospectors, I guess you would say, and they gravitated towards areas where wealth would naturally be found. And in some of the stories, they were actually listed as protectors of vast treasures. So you would amass a horde, and then a griffin would just sort of move in and say, you know, sort of the this is mine, <laughs> but 
in the same way that a cat you get a box and then the cat just jumps into the box right. and so the box now belongs to the cat yeah, exactly so i do some light silver work i do a little bit less now while i'm back in school but earlier on when i had more supply i had one cat in particular that absolutely loved my silver supply and it didn't matter where i had put it she would lay on top of it and so if it was ever out if i ever was moving stuff around if i ever left like my area or my cabinet areas where the stuff was open and the cat was missing i would go and she'd just be laying on top of my silver case and just like this is my spot now (laughs) (laughs) she also stole my bread she's the only cat i've ever known that would steal bread she'd actually like we had to keep bread in the microwave because she would like jump up on top of the fridge and she'd only eat the center of the loaf She'd eat straight through the bag, right in the middle of the loaf, leave everything else. So she was a weird cat. (laughs) (laughs) But going through, we have these amalgamations of bestial creatures. They're generally predators. Again, with the exception of the fire-breathing goat. Again, don't know where fire-breathing with a goat came from, but fire-breathing goat. And horses, because horses generally represented speed and strength. Otherwise, your amalgamations were parts of predators to make them stronger, to make them fiercer. And, of course, the deadliest predator, being man, would bring us to the manticore. Yeah, the manticore is one of many chimeric creatures that are at least part human Yes, in their amalgam. Yes. It was the head of a human and the body of a lion. Sometimes they would have these tails that are covered in venomous spines, kind of like a porcupine. Sometimes they had a scorpion's tail. Right. If they had the venomous spines, in those stories, they would be able to fire those spines like an arrow. So yeah, these manticores were kind of terrifying. Definitely nothing you'd want to walk across in your trip through the woods looking for truffles or anything like that. Definitely would ruin your day. Absolutely. And if you're familiar with the D&D manticore, you'll notice that I left a very important element off. Because the mythological manticore... Did not have wings. Yes, no. The D&D Manticore does. Because why not make something terrifying even more terrifying by letting it fly? By letting it fly. And again, this is the entire concept of the Chimera, which is kind of fun. It's like, take all the things you're frightened of and just mush them together. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> but yeah, the Manticore itself, again, another one of these deadly femme fatale type critters. Manticore definitely feminine with the human face was generally historically feminine again more modern versions it could be a male face but historically it was a female head i don't know if that was to make it more attractive to lure people in or if again it was supposed to present this feminine danger again there was a lot of repressed thought in the middle ages that's all i can say um well, the manticore well predates the middle ages it's from granted. ancient persia yeah i think it's from assyrian mythology i mean that sounds about right again that kind of there like, are a lot Eastern of these yes there are a lot of these that have their roots in assyria right and again you just go back as near as far back as we can with culture and like records of civilization so again you're talking sumeria syria We're right there butting up against, you know, ancient Babylon and Mesopotamia. You have got the Phoenicians and the Hittites. And we'll be talking more about these groups later because, again, these are very old, very primal stories, very primal beasts. These are about as old as we get. Right, yeah. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the game side of some of these monsters. Let's just start with the D&D Chimera. Yeah. As built in D&D, it is a... Tri-headed creature. Yes. Three heads on one body. Has the hindquarters of a goat, the forequarters of a lion, the wings of a dragon, 
and one of each of those heads. Right. Now, with the D&D creature, the heads are all up front, kind of like you would notice with Cerus, versus the mythological version. You've got the lion head up front, the goat head in the middle of the back, and then the snake head on the tail. The way that they are drawn and depicted, typically you have the lion head in the middle, the goat head to the left, and the dragon head to the right. Personally, I would rearrange them a little bit, and I'll explain why in a minute. Because they have three attacks. Yes. You get a bite attack, a ramming horn attack, and either claws or the dragon's breath weapon. Right. That ramming battering horn attack is why I would put the goat head in the middle. Because from an anatomical standpoint, if you put the goat head in the middle then you have the whole mechanical advantage of lining up the skull with the spine, which is why they butt heads. (laughs) is because they lower their head to make that line straight to put more oomph behind it and not hurt themselves while doing it. It's a battering ram, not a battering lion. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. But I could also see that if you were an artist and like, hey, I get to draw a lion, and then you're like, yeah, I'm going to throw a go ahead on this thing. That that feels a little weird where you can just, okay, I'm going to draw a whole lion, and then I'm going to add these two things on the side. It's a much easier task. <laughs> there is that. Now, with this dragon head, the dragon head is typically a red dragon. Yeah. But it is explicit in the monster manual that you can have other colored dragons. And again, this makes sense too, the dragon head being a fire breath weapon, because with the D&D Chimera, the goat head just acts as a battering ram, and the goat head itself does not breathe fire. And so you're going to have this. Red dragon would make sense. Gold dragon, uh, again, this generally is going to be an evil creature, so a gold dragon yeah, wouldn't they, fit. They're almost always chromatic dragons. Yeah. Um, I could see a green dragon with the poison spray. If you want to take the poison tail end of the Chimera and forego the fire, Absolutely, yeah. So these are monsters that, despite their slapdash construction, are actually capable of breeding. Yeah. And giving birth to more chimeras. They they actually breed true. Yeah. Which is... Don't want to see that nature film. No, me neither. (laughs) They tend to be solitary. Sometimes they live in groups of two or three occasionally the lion aspect of this thing will take over and they will create a pride. The pride of chimeras would be terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Though I could see that this would make a lot of sense if you wanted to homebrew. Like I said, you, you need a one-off or you need a campaign. You could really have a pride of chimeras maybe on the mountainside and maybe they're going through and they're scorching like a druid's grove or something like this and they're going through. Because again, they are these embodiments of destruction coming down a mountain. And so maybe not even a druid's grove, just the wilds and a town nearby know these things are coming and they have ruins and they can see the fires kind of creeping down the mountain coming towards them. And so they are going to send your party out to kind of clear this menace. Now, there are a couple of other variants. I don't know if they're found in game or in the novels, but there are a couple of variants. One is you replace the lion's head with the head of a manticore. Okay. Kind of terrifying still. And it also gains the manticore's tail. Oh, definitely terrifying. So now it can shoot poison barbs at you. Chimericore? Chimericore! It sounds like an old like uh, rock or hardcore band type thing. Yeah, that is a scream metal band. That is absolutely, yes. That is my scream metal band name now, Chimericore. And the (laughs) other option that is listed is uh, replacing the goat parts with the parts of a gorgon. 
Oh. The D&D Gorgon, mind you, not, you know, Medusa Gorgon. Uh, so this is the big metallic bull-looking creature that breathes a petrifying gas. Yes. So instead of having goat hindquarters, it has bull hindquarters with this thick, almost metallic hide, and it has another breath weapon that can petrify. I like this. And this kind of, I feel, is a little more true to the actual mythical chimera because now you've got the fire weapon you've got the teeth of the lion and you have this poison ability and if you actually did incorporate this this would definitely give your creature on the table a sizable ac bonus i would think at least a plus one or plus two i would imagine yeah i would probably give it a plus two natural armor yeah ac bonus for that now there are some other kinds of chimera hybrids that can be found in lore absolutely and in other places A lot of these ended up coming from Dragon Magazine. Yeah. As you do. (laughs) One is the Dracomera, which is the offspring of a chromatic dragon and a chimera. Again, that is another nature film I do not want to see. (laughs) Um, So it has two heads on the front. One is a lizard's head and one is a maned dragon head. Okay. So the lion aspect becomes sort of draconic. And I guess the goat head becomes sort of more, you know, just benign lizardy. With this and the way I would picture this, instead of a maned head, I would almost remove the mane and make it like the uh, basilisk frill, like the Dilophosaurus oh, yes. in Jurassic Park. Yes. Where it flops it out and kind of can shake it. Yeah. yeah. And then they also have a dragon neck and head for a tail. Okay. And that is the one that can breathe the breath weapon. Okay. I'm just saying poisonous gas near the tail. Just I'm going like, to politely back away from that one. Yeah. <laughs> there is one called the Thessalmera. Okay. Which is a cross between a Chimera and another Chimeric creature called a Thessalhydra. The Thessalhydra, I was only able to find very brief descriptions of because this was like in one Dragon Magazine article back in the 80s uh, okay. that I... Is like dragon... Ancient lore. It was in a double-digit number issue. So yeah, this was an old creature. But the Thessal Hydra kind of looks like a Hydra crossed with an Otiug. Okay. Or maybe a Beholder. Ooh. Because it had this giant gaping mouth in the center of its chest. And had six to eight Hydra heads that were arrayed in a ring around that mouth. I like it. And it had this prehensile tail with a big pincer on the end of it. So it would grab things with that pincer and, you know, huck them into its mouth like nice. like it's eating popcorn. I'm going to go ahead and slight spoiler warning. If you've not seen Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, go ahead and skip ahead 30 seconds. Now, granted, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood's like, what, 20 years old now? So, yeah. But the scene where Gluttony takes his initially created form where he was supposed to be, you know, an artificial gate and just becomes that gaping maw with the things just shoving everything in. I could totally see that as a Thessal Hydra. Yeah. And then the Thessal Mera is that... Plus Chimera stuff. So it has the scaly body of a Hydra. Okay. The goat's head has been removed. The maw has been added. Okay. So it has this giant gaping maw with a lion head on one side, like a dragon head on the other side, and then it still has the prehensile pincer tail. Okay. Kind of terrifying. A little structurally wonky, I would think. That would make a really strange and fun printable. I think if you could print that out and just 
plop it on your table. What the hell is this? Yeah, it's it has like three lines on the uh, Forgotten Realms wiki with a picture because it's been forgotten. I mean, if you yeah. want to talk about unearthed Arcana, th- this is the definition of Arcana right here. This is old old D anD D stuff. I love it. And then another one. There is a module written by a group called Out of the Box, and Nerdarchy did a review of this module. In that module, they have an Arctic-themed chimera. Okay. With a white dragon head. Okay. That is wearing a headband of intellect. Oh, that's just so, wrong so on this, so many levels. So this chimera that's normally an Intelligence 3 is now an Intelligence 19. Yeah, he's going to wreck your day, boys and girls. <laughs> yeah. So this is terrifying stuff. I would almost, with the Arctic chimera, I would almost want to replace the lion body with a polar bear. The art suggested that that might be the case. That would be kind of cool. It kind of had that snow leopard, polar bear sort of look. It's on the backside because they put the dragon head in the middle. Okay. Ooh, okay. Completely out of left field on this, but if I was going to create this thing from scratch, you just said, hey, make an Arctic chimera. Okay, white dragon, headband of intellect. Okay, that's terrifying and by itself. We'll go with that. Body and head of a polar bear. And then the other head would be the tusked walrus. Okay, yeah. I would give it the amphibious trait. Okay, yeah. Just for having the walrus. Yeah, well, I mean, the polar bears are, are pretty... Or at, least, but yeah. or at least hold breath. Hold breath, yeah. So it can hold its breath underwater. Right, and so with this too, thematically, you still have your white dragon, so you still have your breath weapon. You would have your bestial mouth of many teeth with the bear. And instead of, you know, just ramming with horns, you'd get slapped with these giant fangs from the walrus. If you've ever seen a walrus attack anything, it is horrifying how well they can move that giant, you know, two-ton body just lifted up. And they use those tusks like ice spikes. They're just slam into anything. They are horrifying. All right. So in the interim between me filling out my notes okay, and us getting ready to record, I happened to open my Mythic Odysseys of Theros book. Ooh. Which has a Theron Chimera in it. Okay. It's a little bit of an upgraded Chimera. Stat-wise, it's just a little bit beefier. Right. The only real difference is that it has the spell-turning ability. Ooh. So it has advantage on saving throws against spells. And if the spell that it saves against is fourth level or lower, it is turned back on the caster. That's nice. I like that. But they also have these little tables for customizing your Chimera. I love tables. They make me happy. And I asked James to roll a D4 a few times before we got started, not telling him what it was for. Now I'm scared because I I rolled fairly well. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to go through these tables and tell you what modifications on our standard Chimera you're going to have. So for body composition, you rolled a four. Swamp Creature. Okay. Uh, The Chimera's body is that of a swamp creature or cavern dweller such as a giant lizard or spider. Chimera gains a climbing speed equal to its walking speed and can climb on difficult surfaces, including upside down and on ceilings without needing to make an ability check. A Chimeric spider. Holy crap. Yeah, you gave it spider climb. Oh. We're all going to die. That's it. So head attacks. You also rolled a four on this. Cockatrice beak. A creature hit by the Chimera's head attack must succeed on a DC 15 con save or be restrained. 
As it begins turning into stone, the restrained creature must repeat the saving throw at the end of its next turn. On a success, the effect ends. On a failure, the creature is petrified for 24 hours. I like this. And again, this is something that Ian and I have discussed the past couple weeks, is this petrified or stone condition. Used to be a big thing, particularly in like AD&D and early, early games, looking at like the original Final Fantasy and things like that. And it's largely fallen out of favor. And I would really like to see this make a comeback. Because the picture that is shown here... For the Theron Chimera is a lion head with ram horns, a unicorn head, and an eagle head. Okay. So the cockatrice head is replacing that eagle head. Okay, yeah. So we're going to have an eagle, a unicorn slash horse, and a lion, I guess. Okay. Um, but it also has the body of either a lizard or a spider. And uh, with this one, for me, I'm going to go spider just because there's so many arachnophobes. <laughs> and, I mean, we've got enough, you know, lizard-type things with dragons and stuff like that. Spiders are a little underrepresented. Okay. The next one, you rolled a two. That gives us a tidal wave breath. Uh, Chimera has an aquatic creature's head that exhales a torrent of acidic water in a 60-foot line that is 5 foot wide. Each creature in the line must make a DC 15 dex save. On a failed save, takes 27, 5d10 acid damage, and is knocked prone. On a successful save, it takes half as much damage and isn't knocked prone. Okay. So we now have a cockatrice head and some sort of aquatic creature head. Okay. Sticking with the swamp thing, I'm thinking maybe something like a frog. I could see like a frog's head. A frog's head, yeah. Especially because it's going to have that regurgitation effect for the tidal wave. Yeah. If we were doing this as more of a lizard sort of body, yeah. I could see putting like a turtle head on it, maybe? Or a salamander. A salamander, yeah. Axolotl. Yes! An ax- oh, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. We have an axolotl. We okay. have done axolotl head. Okay, yes. Um, <laughs> and then the last one is a tail attack. You rolled another two. Perplexing tail. Has an additional head where its tail should be. The Chimera loses its tail attack and makes two head attacks when it takes the multi-attack action. Use the head attacks table to determine the nature of the new head. So, you need to roll again on the head attacks table. A two, a shark bite. So it has a shark head on its tail. Okay, why not? And so it has advantage on head attack rolls against any creature that doesn't have all of its hit points. Oh my. This thing has gotten brutal really Yeah, it's really fast. <laughs> so, and that is the thing. These chimeric creatures, they are generally not going to be your end boss. They're not going to be your big, bad, evil guy, as it were. These are going to be probably a questing beast of some sort. You know, something your party's going to want to go hunt to get a trophy, maybe level up. If you are a particularly vicious GM... They could pop up on a random encounter. This would be the type of random encounter that your party probably isn't supposed to fight. This is a good time where you can teach your party that cowardice is a perfectly acceptable strategy and running away is just fine. Absolutely. (laughs) Again, you are not supposed to necessarily win every fight. The goal is to survive every fight. Yes, and sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. Yes, but again, these can be fun. These can be terrifying. And that said, this is something that I have seen a lot, particularly in older video games that I don't see too much in tabletop games. If your party has come across one of these giant creatures at a point where they're lower level, where they're supposed to run away, then maybe as they advance in level, if they are staying near the same settlements or towns or something like that, they can go back and, like I said, maybe they can earn a monetary award or, you know, a bunch of experience or some sort of town favor for clearing this scourge away from the city after they've leveled up, but they will have knowledge of this creature that they've encountered several sessions before. 
the way that I would take this is, you know, they run into it when they are clearly too low level to tangle with it. Right. If they engage with it, it just batters. PPK. <laughs> it bats them around for a little bit. Hopefully they get the hint and do a tactical retreat. But if the game goes on for a while, maybe they need something as a spell component. I could see that as well, yeah. Uh, and so now they're 15th level and they're like, hey, remember that time? Yeah. When we ran into that horrible beastie out in the swamp? Yes. We know where that is. Right. We can go and kill it now. I like this too. And especially if your party was the one that tried to, you know, fight this thing and got battered around a bit. Maybe some of your players are harboring or carrying some scars from this battle. And again, this would go into how well your players RP or anything like that. But as a DM, hey, you are now permanently scarred from this attack. And so now they've definitely got a solid memory of this thing. And this does lead into, again, that immersion of the game, which makes the game far more relatable. And memorable, because it's not just a bunch of, here's this and it's gone now, but everything, all of their actions have consequences that range even further into the game other than just that one session. Yeah, and, you know, especially if one of the party members died. Oh, even better. Because if you do this early enough, this is before they have access to resurrection magic. And so maybe this is an instance where you did actually kill a PC, And they all retreated and that player ended up having to roll up a new character. And so now this also adds this sense of vengeance to it. Yeah, absolutely. Or Or if they are high enough level by this point, you'd be able to collect the remains of the party member if there are any. Right. And you would have access to like a seventh level resurrection spell. And you could actually resurrect them. Right. Or even if you don't, if you've had enough money, then you could take them possibly to a town cleric and do it that way, though. That's a very expensive option. Yeah. That would be a major metropolitan area cleric. You know, you're not going to be able to wheel in with a cart full of bones to your rural... To your local hamlet. (laughs) Yeah. to, To your country temple cleric, you know, the one that has a congregation of 30 people because there's 30 people living in town. And, you know, expect him to drop a 7th level <laughs> resurrection spell. Why not? No, I brought him to a cleric. Why not? I even got my bag of gold. What? No, no, make with magic. <laughs> DM magic now. <laughs> but yeah, so again, these chimeras, again, they're fun. You can use them as harbingers. It depends on how you want them, but they are going to be wandering beasties, that kind of thing. The other aspect of chimeras that we haven't really touched on yet is a lot of these especially some of the D ones the more famous ones were creations i'm looking at miss nina tucker currently sorry i said i'm looking at miss nina tucker currently okay full metal I... alchemist oh yes sorry <laughs> the name just sort of went right over, went right over... Yes. it's been a long time it since i've watched so I... I just need the picture though the picture and you'll know and word <laughs> brother <laughs> yes that is as close as i've ever come to crying watching any kind of show tv movie or anything like that that came yeah i almost lost a few drops on that one all right so let's talk about a few other options for chimeric creatures that appear in D. yes one of them is the simurg okay uh simurg is a chimeric creature of persian origin it has a dog's head a lion's body a peacock tail, and hawk wings. Interesting. Fans of Critical Role who have been watching Season 3, these are the creatures that the guards in the city that I'm blanking on, where they start the campaign. Okay. 
The guards in that city fly around on Simurgs. Oh, okay. The 3.5 Simurg is in the Monster Manual as the Senmerv. Okay. That is drawing from a different, older Persian spelling. Both are anglicized versions. Supposedly, the Simurg of Persian lore is a monstrous creature that is old enough to have seen the world destroyed three times over. That's kind of terrifying. It has a lot of parallels to the phoenix. Apparently every 1700 years, it will throw itself into a fire and be reborn from the ashes. Okay. One of the things that I read that I couldn't find any actual concrete literature about suggested that it is the precursor to the rock. R-O-C, the giant bird. Not the wrestler. Not the wrestler. Oh, damn. This is not Dwayne Johnson. Oh, okay. We should tag him in this post, because apparently, like, he does, like, some fantasy D&D stuff. So, I mean, hey, if you want to listen, Rock, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but because the Simurg was also a monstrous creature that was large enough to pick up and carry off an elephant. And that is the defining I mean, characteristic of the Rock, is yes. it is a bird large enough to pick up and carry off an elephant. Right. Just a there, massive bird of prey. So, there was a 12th century Sufi poem by... Farid Uddin Attar. Well done on the pronunciation. Called Conference of Birds. And the whole thing behind the Conference of Birds, the whole thing behind the poem is that the birds are all coming together because they are trying to choose a king. A king of the birds. And the wisest bird of them all, the hoopoe, says, well, we need to go and find the Simurg. And the Simurg is up at this lake. Let's go and find the Simurg. And this group of 30 different birds goes up to the lake, and each of these birds is representative of a different fault in human behavior that prevents man from attaining enlightenment. And so whenever they arrive at the lake, they don't find the Simurg there. What they find is they look into the lake and they see their reflections, and it's because the poet is basing this off of basically a pun. Okay. Because in Persian, the phrase Simurg means 30 birds. That's kind of awesome. And honestly, that really ties in really well with our beginning quote talking about if chimeras are a must, then perfection should be humanity's chimera. So with that, the wisest bird is kind of the mesh of all of them together. Yeah. And that does make a little bit of sense because, you know, this is supposed to be a bird or a bird-like creature capable of carrying off an elephant. Yeah. So that would be, say... You know, 30 times larger than a normal bird. Yeah. What's the ground speed velocity of a coconut laden swallow? swallow? Exactly. But I mean, if you had 30 swallows, how big of a coconut could they lift? Yeah, on a on a string? Yeah. I mean, if you really wanted to wax philosophical about this, while each of the bird characterized one human flaw, all of them together would also have the counters to those flaws. And so, you know, it does bring about the importance of community, which, you know, hey, tabletop community, we love you all. All right. Another one that is in D&D is the Paraton. Okay. According to the mythological description, and I'm using great big air quotes that you can't see on that, <laughs> um, the Paraton is a stag with wings. I use the great big air quotes that you can't see because the origins, as far as we can tell, are from a book called The Book of Imaginary Beings by Georges-Luc Borgia in 1957. Yes, this one's fairly modern. There are, you know, going back depictions of 
winged deer, but not this particular winged stag as presented with this. And this is kind of one of those fun things. As you look into these creatures that you think are going to have like this huge backing of lore and you wind up that they are fairly modern. And we're running upon this fairly frequently now. So, I mean, the human imagination is still alive and well, which is kind of inspiring. Yeah. So the author claimed that he pulled this from a bunch of ancient stories but he didn't provide sources or any sort of documentation for it. Citation needed. No Wikipedia does not count. <laughs> uh, especially not in 1957. Right. But he claims a number of characteristics, including that they're covered in green or dark blue feathers. They eat dry earth. Okay. They used to live in Atlantis. And that the Sibyl of Eritrea foretold that they would destroy Rome. That Rome would be destroyed by a flock of paratons. Interesting. And as James mentioned, you know, winged deer are all throughout medieval iconography. The earliest instances that I was able to find trace back to the Scythians, who are a Middle Eastern slash Asia Minor in that area. I didn't write it down, but I think it's starting around the 7th century BCE. It sounds about right. And the deer was an important animal. I don't know the significance. I don't know that archaeologists or anthropologists even fully understand the significance because I wasn't able to find a whole lot on it. It might just be that it's a JSTOR thing that I don't have access to the articles. <laughs> Could just be that the information is behind a paywall. Talk um, to me about that later on as I am currently enrolled in college and classes. I do have JSTOR access. Don't you threaten me with a good time. <laughs> And so both in the book and in D&D, one of the big important details is that the Paraton does not have a Paraton-shaped shadow. It has a human-shaped shadow. Okay, I like this so far. While the why for that is not really laid out in the lore book, in D&D it is. One of the important changes made to the Paraton between the lore and D&D is that the Paraton is no longer a deer with wings. It is now a raptor, a giant bird, with a stag's head and these big, nasty, sharp, chompy teeth. Okay. And in D&D, the shadow that it has is the shadow of the last person it ate. I like it. Now, we had talked about this a little bit previous, and my mind took this a slightly different direction, and that the whole idea of the Paraton itself is a myth, and that your players never actually get to encounter or fight the Paraton, because the Paraton itself is an illusion of a dragon. And maybe it's casting the shadow of the humanoid form of the dragon because it's using this magic to kind of change its shape. And this would be one of those kind of misdirection things that you could throw is that they see this paraton and it's obviously a threat. It's obviously threatening people as your party goes to approach it. And then, bam, oh no, there's a dragon. I mean, that is an option. But I mean, there are so many other options that you could do with this too. You know, just about any of your more powerful fiends yeah. would also do this because a lot of them do have a humanoid sort of form. Right. And so if they just throw an illusion spell over themselves and you just rule that the illusion spell is purely visual, is purely visual. And so the light from the sun still passes through and still hits the physical body inside. And so it's still casting a shadow in the shape of the devil or demon that is within the illusion. Yeah. And see, I like this. And again, too, this especially kind of promotes the DM to examine 
what the actual wording of the spells are. And again, yeah, you can get really super rules lawyery with it, and man, that's not so much fun. But if you actually look at the rules of the spell, you can really do some interesting, especially with things like illusion. It really is an underutilized school. Yeah. You can do a lot of really interesting things to misdirect or confuse. And yeah, set up your party with this false idea or this false confidence that they're going to meet this thing. And they're like, it was all magic. Ta-da! <laughs> and I mean, I could also see this being an especially powerful genie or air genasi as well. Yeah. Because the air elemental school does lend itself well to illusion. Yeah, very much. It fits thematically. It really does. Okay, moving along. This is one that James was really happy that I found. Yes, I love this thing. This thing um, is horrible it, and amazing at the same time. <laughs> so this is a creature of African origin, and it is the Catoblipus. Now, one, I'm happy. We don't get a lot of creatures of purely African origin, unless you want to count Egyptian. And yeah, there's a lot of Egyptian stuff. You might get some other North African things from like Tunisia or Algeria. But I mean, actual like into continental Africa, you don't see a lot of their lore coming up. So I'm really happy that we found something that we can present. It, it does warm my heart. Yeah. So the mythological Catablipus is a pig-headed buffalo. Okay. The D&D Catablipus is something else entirely. Oh my. I forget the animals that they say it is, but I don't think it looks like No, the... not at all. So I would say that it's kind of a camel base. Yes. With stumpier legs. Yes. And maybe a longer neck, almost a giraffe proportioned neck. neck with a warthog's head on the end of it. Yes. All covered in this shaggy brown fur with a giant ankylosaur clubbed tail. <laughs> this thing is amazing. It's really like, I want to play with these creatures. They look they, so much fun. They really are. According to mythology, they had a stare or maybe a breath that could petrify people or kill them outright. Sometimes it was a noxious, poisonous breath instead. Luckily, its head was very heavy and it had this long, spindly neck. So it took a long time for it to get its head swung around to look at you, which means that if you stumbled across one, you had time to turn around and right. get away yeah. before it would turn its gaze upon you and kill you. Some people believe that the mythological Catablipus was a monster constructed to explain the existence of wildebeest. I could see this. Again, wildebeests, they look kind of wonky if you've not seen them before. They are kind of beefy. They're kind of shaggy. They've got, you know... They look like a cow that has a warthog head. Yeah, they really do. <laughs> they really, really do. And horns. Yes. A horned warthog head. Yeah. I mean, you could say that and, yeah, you know exactly what a wildebeest looks like. Yeah. So, some of the quote-unquote historical accounts of the Catablipus stated that its poisonous breath came from the fact that it ate a lot of poisonous plants. And so the poisons from the plants just sort of exuded from it. It's kind of like if you eat a bunch of garlic and you kind of get that garlic funk through your skin. Yeah, just, just a little bit. Yeah. So in D&D, &D, they are harbingers of pestilence and decay. They have this stench aura that sort of lingers around them. So if you get within 10 feet of them, you got to make a con save or you're poisoned. They have the ability to smash things with their tail. They have the ability to 
headbutt things. They have a recharging death ray. That's like awesome. Literal death ray. <laughs> so creatures that get targeted by the death ray take 8d8 necrotic damage. That's a whole lot. That's a whole lot. Half damage on a successful DC 16 con save. That's still a whole lot. And if you fail your save by five points or more, you take max damage. So you take 64 necrotic damage. Right. So 8d8, that's going to average to what? About 36. 36. And so, yeah, if you're saving, you're still taking, what, 18 points of damage mm -hmm. on a save? Yeah. On average. On average. Probably more. And if you are reduced to zero hit points... From the death ray, you die, no death saves. None. Zero. It you do not one, pass go. It is one of the very few instances in 5e that still has a save or die mechanic. Yes. So it is kind of a unique monster in that it effect. Is. And I would love to see these. Now, again, this would be if you're running a big campaign. You know, if we're going to have big, bad, evil guys, why not have the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse? And I could see these as a frontline shock troop for the Rider of Pestilence. Yeah. Especially since in lore, especially in like second edition lore, they were sort of tamed and used as beasts of burden. Right. And so it was more of, they wouldn't turn their death glare on somebody who they knew was feeding them. Yeah. And they had a special kind of, I think it was ferns, that they really liked eating. And so as long as they had that oh, available. They're happy? They would just linger. Okay. And so... If you ran out and you didn't feed them anymore, they would just wander off back into the swamp. Yeah, as they do. Yeah, as no, they do. I like that. But they, yeah. So they I weren't could... ever really truly domesticated. They were just... Tamed. They were just hanging around and docile and compliant as long as there was food. I, I could see that. Again, having a parrot, I can totally imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I like these. And like I said, I could see these as using as a frontline, either a beast of burden or like a type of shock troop for... Like I said, a blighter would be another really good. That's an old third edition. It was basically an evil druid that instead of communing with nature each day to get their spells, they would have to destroy a set amount of nature each day to get their spells. The blighter in third edition was a really kind of a tragic character. Very interesting because they were initially druids. They still had this connection to nature, but they became so twisted and evil that, like I said, they had to destroy nature to gain their power and their spells. And so that hurt them. It bothered them that they were destroying nature, but they were so power hungry they would do it anyway yeah and so i could see a blighter using catablepus as like i said a beast of burden or a guardian of some sort yeah there were instances in lore where hags would basically keep them as cattle that would also make perfect um, sense and again they're horrifying enough and they're kind of malformed they, they would fit very well with a hag yeah and their milk was <laughs> this is a really bizarre thing so their milk was actually perfectly safe to drink if you could drink it it had the consistency of treacle so it was very thick almost like evaporated milk thick yeah it had the color of cranberries and it smelled like baked ham this stuff is weird though it would be amazing <laughs> like an amazing ham dressing for like a thanksgiving sandwich or something like that yes i just i also imagine from the last jedi where luke skywalker and he's drinking that green milk from those critters yeah yeah except red <laughs> it's just it's gross it is <laughs> because it's cranberry red it's that yeah deep dark red right i'm not going to go into what mental image that creates i'm leaving that to you <laughs> 
but they would make it into a cheese that was very highly sought after because it was a very high quality cheese. And I mean, who's going to keep a catapulipus unless you got these ferns? Because if it gets mad, it's going to stare at you to death. And apparently there is an order of blind monks that would go out and milk these things. That is a way to defeat the death gaze. You can't see me. I'm not looking at you. (laughs) Exactly. And apparently you could take the cheese and you could ferment it into... Catablipus death cheese wine, which was a super high potency alcoholic spirit. I love this. And I love the fact it's called death cheese. Yes, um, Catablipus death cheese. This is what we're going to serve as concessions for my Chimericor band. Yeah. Chimericor serving death cheese. <laughs> it's the color of blood. <laughs> exactly. No, this is the most metal thing ever. This is our best metal show we've done. <laughs> I mean, you can literally just cut off a slice Slap it on a piece of bread and you already have a ham and cheese sandwich. Exactly. You don't have to add <laughs> anything else to it. I mean, just put some of that extra milk on top just, just to give it the extra... Cu- yeah, we're yeah. set. Yeah. Okay. I think we've played out the catablipus. Yeah, the catablipus is definitely very interesting and I really want to bring one to my table soon. And it's so much fun to say. It is. Anyway. Catablipus. Catablipus. <laughs> so, James did mention a couple of constructed chimeric creatures... That are purely D&D creatures. Yes. The most common, especially with the D&D movie having come out, has to be the owlbear. Yes. The owlbear will absolutely wreck your day. I will say, I did get to see the movie before the showing closed uh, out here. Very happy I was able to sneak in and get that. They did a great job with the owlbear. Very well done. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So, for those of you who may not know what an owlbear is, it is a bear with an owl's head. And owl talons on its front feet. And it's generally covered in feathers. Its body is generally feathered. Yes. Or at least the front half. Half of it, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the back half can be a woolly bear, but yeah. The common lore is that they were created as a magical chimera Mm. by some wizard. Right. There is a little bit of lore added in 5th edition that suggested that they might actually be natural creatures native to the Feywild. I have not read that. Now, the bit of lore I read in the books talks about the owlbear and says the best thing about the owlbear is that the wizard that created them is dead. Yes. (laughs) I think that is actually a quote attributed to Elminster. Okay. But yeah, I mean, this gives you the depiction of the general temperament of the owlbear. Yeah. So in some instances in lore, the elves that live in treetop communities will actually encourage colonies of owlbears to move in and live around the base of the trees that their cities are built in. Okay. I mean, this makes sense. They would be a perfect guardian, especially if you're not walking on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Floor is lava, boys and girls. Don't touch it. And apparently, they are the favored war beast and mount of hobgoblins. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, I don't remember where exactly I read that. I can't remember if that was on the wiki or if that was actually in the monster manual. But... Just imagine that. I can't imagine trying to bridle an owlbear. I mean, to give you some kind of inkling, okay, so you've got the jaw power of a bear or an owl. I have parrots. I enjoy birds. I have an African gray. She's relatively small. But you have a bird. There's another parrot called a hyacinth macaw. They're absolutely gorgeous. And, I mean, they're about the size from your elbow to your shoulder, maybe a little bit bigger than that. They are a fairly large bird. And as juveniles, their beaks are strong enough to snap a broomstick in half. Yeah. Scale this up to the size of a bear. 
This thing's going to snip snap you in half and not even blink. You could be wearing full plate armor and it'll snip snap you in half. I mean, it's... Well, I mean, if it's going off of an owl... Yeah. It's going to bite down over top of your head. Uh Uh-huh. And then it's going to throw its head back and swallow you whole. Yeah. And then it will cough up all of the undigestible parts of you and, like... A couple hours. That would be a good way to find an armor reserve, a bunch of owlbear pellets, and you're just kind of like, <laughs> did you ever do that in school where you had yes. to like it to the bones? Yeah, so you're doing that, and hey, look, I've got some plate armor. Yeah, you can just run off with yeah. it. I've got a breastplate. Just clean it yeah. up a little bit. I mean, there's your idea for how you find loot in the back of your owlbear lair. Yeah, you have to um, dig through the owlbear pellets. Um, pouch of gold, some armor, I mean, maybe a dagger or two that's horked up. The occasional magical item, like a yeah. necklace or a ring. Or yeah, a no, that makes perfect cloak. sense. Yeah. Well done. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can see it. It would be another one of those things where it's sort of an ill-advised thing. It's the reason why we don't see carnivorous animals as mounts in the real world. Because they are inherently more aggressive than herbivores. They require more upkeep. They're often not as large and so are not capable of the strain of bearing a passenger right also Um, a lot of your predatory animals or carnivorous animals with exceptions such as wolves and lions i mean those are the two big ones tend to be solitary creatures they don't function well in a group but owlbears do yeah function in groups if you allow them to right I can see having a hobgoblin wizard or a shaman or someone like that capable of casting speak with animals or animal friendship or some of these enchantment spells that are able to more or less domesticate. I would get that. But now I ask you for a DM call. Okay. Again, I'm going to rose lawyer a bit because the owlbear is listed as a monstrosity, not a beast. Would speak with animals work on such a critter? Well... I would personally say yes, because I would go back to third edition when they were magical beasts. Fair enough. As opposed to monstrosities. Okay. And that is fair. And again, this does become a DM call. This does become a little bit of rules lawyery, again, depending on how exactly you want to read the text if you want to call back. And if you're a DM, if such a question does come up, as long as you have a fair justification for your answer, that's fine. If you're just making rulings willy-nilly, that's an issue. But if you do have a justification for your answer, that's generally going to fly with most tables. And as long as you are consistent with your rulings. Yeah. You know, don't let one person do something and not let someone else do the same thing or a very similar thing. Correct. As long as you're consistent, homebrew your rules as you want. But with the Hobgoblin, this would definitely be a higher end. This would definitely be a commander of some sort or a leader. This wouldn't be a Hobgoblin grunt, you know, on a bunch of owlbears. This would definitely be a mark of prestige. Yeah, I would say, you know... The general of the army has his owlbear mount and maybe his immediate lieutenants. I could see you know, that. Each, each one is in command of a different fist of the army. And so your different fist commanders would have an owlbear mount. I could see that. And then the general might have like an armored owlbear or something like that. Yeah. Okay. I could totally see that. And oh my god, that would be so exciting to come up against. Oh, and... What would be even more fun, if we're going higher level on this, Okay, is if there happens to be, say, a hobgoblin or a goblin druid in this army that has awakened the general's owlbear. Ooh. So it is a sentient owlbear. 
Ooh, I love this. And it's covered in like plate barding. So you sit there and just, I could imagine describing this. You have this huge hulking beast come up. You know, the shoulders are coming up to your eye level. A giant owl beak. It's gleaming black or it's gleaming yellow. And it's covered with these plates of gleaming metal. It stands up on its hindquarters. It's now twice as tall as you are. And it gives out this screech that blows your hair back. I mean, you could totally play this up. It would be absolutely terrifying on the table. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And say the general has a necklace or something that allows him to speak with animals. He can communicate Communicate. with his owlbear. Who is now sentient. Who is now sentient and able to carry on a conversation with him. Oh, so maybe you scare off the owlbear and it runs away and it's waiting in ambush now. Yeah, or it just ran back and gave away all of your positions. Yeah. And let everybody know that you're on the way. That would be a good mid-campaign thing as you meet the general on his owlbear. So now you know he's there. But he's sitting there, he's taunting you. You have your skirmish while the owlbear runs off. And now you hear the sounds of the rest of the army coming up and the general and the owlbear bamf out. While the minions can handle the light work yeah. until a later day. And that would also allow for, say, if you ran into one of his lieutenants. Yes. Their owlbear mount may not be awakened, but it can still run back to the main camp. It can communicate with the general's owlbear. The general's owlbear can then relay that information to the general. Yes. And so now the entire army is aware of your presence. And that would be another way if you did slay one of the lieutenants and the owlbear were to escape, then yes, this would still yeah. give. No, I, I love that scenario. That leads into so many more sessions. <laughs> so much. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, there aren't very many truly unique to D&D chimeric creatures. The other one that I've found... Is almost scarier. It is. It really is. So stop with me here. You have an owl, which is the silent predator. You have a bear, which is this giant, you know, massive, horrifying beast. You've mashed them together to make really a frightening creature. How are you going to scale this up? So, in 3rd edition, in a not very popular book, <laughs> Monster Manual 4. Number 4. Number 4 of 5. There were there were 5 Monster Manuals in 3rd edition. There was a gold nugget. In Monster Manual 4... There is a monster that was created by the wizard Autoluk. He had his mage tower in limbo, and he needed something that would help protect his mage tower from the slod. And we've talked about the slots before. They are no lightweights. And so the thing that he came up with was called the Howler Wasp. The what? The Howler Wasp. This isn't going to end well. So you take a yellow jacket... Terrifying and evil. Scale it up to medium size. Even worse. And cross it with a howler monkey. Why? Dear God, why? No. No, something should not be done. This is a, <laughs> this is an atrocity. Uh, so, yes. So, we have these black and yellow, hyper-aggressive wasps with monkey faces that screech at you. Yeah, so you've got the fangs, you've got the yelling. By the art, they actually have some front talons and claws. So, the, the front forelimbs of the wasp does have some appendage-like things for claws. Almost like a praying mantis. Yes. The art on this thing is gloriously wrong and is nightmare fuel. Yeah, I love it. I love every bit of it. (laughs) I mean, just as a 
fun thing. Just translate them into five E stats and yeah, let's and, do this. We we did bring them back out. We need to bring these need to go on our Patreon because Howler wants me to be thinking. And and the best part about these is like every horrible science experiment got absolutely wrong. They were supposed to stay in the tower. They were supposed to, but apparently Odalok got done with them, realized this is probably a bad idea, and flushed them down the toilet. No, <laughs> before he had a chance to destroy them, the slot eye attacked his tower. <laughs> And they got loose in Oops. the chaos. Apparently they were not that good of a guardian. And so they form these hives and they will roam up to 10 miles from their hives in search of food. And they are carnivorous. So anything that is meat is fair game. Yes. They are intelligent enough as social creatures to where if they are injured, they will flee from the thing that has attacked them. Go back to the hive, get more friends, and come back. So this is your friendly under travel advisory. Let's avoid the limbo for a while. <laughs> or if you're truly evil, this would absolutely be something a chaotic evil character would do. There's no other alignment that would do this. But go to limbo and transport a hive into the material plane. I can definitely see something like howler wasps appearing in a jungle like in Chult. Yes. These things would be right at home in Chult. Chult yes. has enough weird shit going on. <laughs> These are just terrifying and just powerful enough to work in Chult. I like that. And two, I can see the Howler Wasp definitely coming up in third edition because, again, this was uh, around the mid to late 90s, I believe, is when third edition started rolling out. Third edition started in 2000, 2001. Okay. I think 3.5 came out in 03. Maybe? Okay. I'd have to look at books. Because in the mid-90s, you had the giant killer bee scare. You know, as the, yeah. the hides of the killer bees were starting to spread through the American Southwest, and everybody was freaking out that the killer bees were going to go on the spree. So I could see where these howler wasps were definitely inspired by these killer bee migrations. So... That said, it would make a lot of sense for these wasps, these hives to start spreading and migrating themselves as well. Yeah. And so the other thing... The thing that they picked up from Yellow Jackets is that whenever they die, they can spray the creature that killed them with a pheromone. And that pheromone causes all other howler wasps that encounter them to frenzy and attack the pheromone-drenched target. This is so bad. <laughs> the pheromone washes off with water. It wears off in like 10 minutes. Right. But whenever you're barbarian smashes that first of these four or five howler wasps that the party runs into right and gets sprayed with this pheromone and so now everything starts attacking focus fire on the barbarian and it all now has an attack bonus and a damage bonus because it's frenzied for the attack right that barbarian is going to have a bad time, even if he's raging. Yes, absolutely. If you need some negative reinforcement for your murder hobo party to teach them to not always murder hobo, howler wasps. <laughs> yes. Yeah, go ahead. Kill one. Let's see. Yeah, just kill it for fun. Go right there. I'll, I'll let you have that at that. <laughs> okay. Um, so I've got a few other honorable mentions before we wrap up. So we've got the Wolpertinger. Okay. It is a creature... Of Germanic origin, I think. I do enjoy these critters. They have the head of a rabbit, the body of a squirrel, the antlers of a deer, and the legs and wings of a pheasant. This is very much a European jackalope. Exactly. Yeah. There's the mantidrake, which is a hybrid between a 
dragon and a manticore. Okay, also terrifying. So that kind of goes with the dragon and the chimera mix. And then we have, of course, all of our person plus creature hybrids. So we've got things like the minotaur. We've got things like the lamia or the naga, which are human snake hybrids. They're kind of like Yanti, but not quite. There is a Japanese yokai or spirit creature called the Nureona, which is a water serpent with a woman's head. A little scary, but okay. Um, They apparently work in tandem with another yokai. I can't remember the name of it, but they'll be carrying what appears to be a swaddled child that is crying, and they will pass this child off to another person. And if the person takes it, they find that it is both very heavy, so they can't move with it, but it is also stuck to them. Oh. And so they're trapped there, and then the other yokai comes and eats them. Oh, that's like a mimic bomb. Almost. I kind of like it. So that is another thing. There are lots of human-snake hybrid creatures. There is, see here, echidna. Echidna, yeah. And the other one that is the other parent of the hydra. Typhon? Typhon, yes. Yes. Typhon. Um, Typhon actually is a D&D monster, also in Mythic Odysseys of Theros. Excellent. I happen to find that. For research for the next episode. Hooray! Huzzah! Um, oh, more spoilers. because More spoilers. spoilers. <laughs> We're all full of spoilers today. And then we have the centaurs and the wemics. Centaurs being body of a horse with the torso of a human. Wemics, we talked about them a little bit uh, a while back. I made a monster called the Leon and Sagittary, which is based off of a heraldic monster, which ended up effectively being the Wemmick because I found them after the fact oh, okay. in the second edition monster manual. So a Wemmick is basically a centaur that has a lion body instead of a horse body. Interesting. As you mentioned, James, the Sphinx, there is the Lamassu from Assyrian myth, right? which is, depending on the story, either a lion body or a bull body with a human head right. and eagle wings. And then most of the creatures that we talked about in the last few episodes. So things like harpies and sirens and mermaids and nixies and all of those that are half human, half fish or half human, half bird or any that yeah. sort of conglomeration. I mean, that kind of rounds out our mishmash creatures. Again, they are a lot of fun. You have a lot of options. And again, especially talking about with just specifically the D&D monsters and the created monsters, if you don't want to grab one from lore, which there are plenty of, there's a lot of explanation and reasons you could take the and just take the best or the most fearsome of any two or three creatures and just smash them together and say, hey, look what I made, because that's all a chimera really is. Yeah. It's like a Play-Doh Monsters. It's yeah. kind of fun. And then there's also one that I just happened to remember, you know, like the Tresim. The Tresim is just a winged cat. Oh, you know, because cats yeah. need wings. Because yeah. they don't get into enough trouble as it is. And apparently they talk too, like the Grimalkin does. Oh, nice. But our friends over at Goblin's Corner a while ago did an episode on Chimeras. And they came up with a whole bunch of really interesting combinations. I think my favorite from... That episode, and it is a fan favorite, is the Beholder Shark. That's just wrong. That is absolutely wrong. (laughs) So it is a shark that has the Beholder eye stalks and a single central eye. I'm going to have to go up these guys and smack them with a newspaper, rolled up newspaper, because that bad. No, no, no. (laughs) And, And I'll put a link to that episode in our show notes, and I encourage you to go and check them out, because 
Matt and Eric over there. They're, They're great guys. Great, yeah. They have a great show. Go listen to them. Absolutely. I mean, I think that pretty well does it for today. That does. I do have one more thing to say before we wrap up. Okay. Catablebus. Catablebus. <laughs> Again, thank you everyone for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, send us an email, undercommontaste at gmail.com or through our Twitter account for as long as that still a thing at UCT Homebrew or come join us on Discord and chat with us directly there. We will see you again in two weeks. Actually, no, we will see you sooner than that. Yes. Because on Friday, May 12th, we are going to be having another interview. Yes, actually. And I'm going to let James explain who we're interviewing because this is someone that James knows. Yes. So uh, May being Mental Health Awareness Month, I will be speaking, we we will rather be speaking with Dr. Ali Matu. He was a psychologist from Cambridge University. He's now over in San Francisco. He has the Psych Show on YouTube and Instagram. He talks a lot about anxiety disorders. And so we are going to speak with him about how to approach and deal with mental disorders in D&D and tabletop gaming, how tabletop gaming could also possibly be used to help, you know, breach some of these social anxiety issues that many of us have and how to address these things on the game in a fair and reasonable manner. Yes. So we're going to be having an interview with him. This is going to be an earlier in the day interview because family things on both his end and our end. So this interview is going to be happening at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Friday, May 12th on our Twitch stream, twitch.tv slash undercommontaste. If you can't be there for the live interview, it will be our standard episode for the following Wednesday. Correct. That all said, stay safe, everyone, and we will see you in two weeks. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Under Common Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash David Sutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe and we'll see you then.